Welcome to the Impact Education Payer Talk CE program entitled Real-Time Continuous Glucose Monitoring Impact on Glycemic Control and Acute Metabolic Events. My name is Jeff Dunn. I am the Chief Clinical Officer at Cooperative Benefits Group. We are a PBM located in Salt Lake City, and I am joined today by Dr. Rick DeLotte. So let's get started. Dr. Rick DeLotte is one of the authors of a recently published study in JAMA on the association of real-time continuous glucose monitoring with glycemic control and acute metabolic events among patients with insulin-treated diabetes. Today, we are going to talk about this study and health plan opportunities to improve diabetes outcomes for patients. Welcome, Dr. DeLotte. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. Uh, good to have you. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So, Dr. DeLotte, self-monitoring of blood glucose is the cornerstone of diabetes care, obviously. But why did you and your colleagues decide to look at how patients with diabetes were monitoring their blood glucose levels at Kaiser Permanente? And then secondly, what did you find? At Kaiser Permanente, we have a really robust system in place with diabetic registry that's been uh, around for a decade or more, very extensively used EMR and really good claims data. And we are able to do some really spectacular matched cohort group finding when we do retrospective studies. And so we know that real-time CGM uh, is widely used for type 1 diabetics, but increasingly we saw some use in our type 2 patients, and we were really interested in looking to see who received the, the CGM and then what was the real-time outcome of that data. And as I said before, there are randomized trials that showed real benefit for real-time CGM in, in type 1 diabetics, but much less so for type 2. It just wasn't really there. And although there were some uh, indications of the benefit for type 2, really getting translational, trying to move from the trial studies to the benchtop, Oftentimes, the real-world data allows us to confirm efficacy seen in, in randomized trials. And so over this four-year study, we looked back to see if there was improvement in A1C. And we did see this for, um, I'll, I'll focus on the type 2 uh, data. We found clinically significant difference in difference reduction in A1C among those who were initiated. And the net change actually was greater for patients with type 2 diabetes versus those with type 1 diabetes. And the people with type 2 diabetes who initiated achieved a weighted and adjusted A1C improvement of 0.56%, dropping their mean A1C from 8.2 to 7.64%. And that was a greater drop than we saw with those with type 1 diabetes, which was a little surprising. One of the other aspects is that I was curious about was the number needed to treat, because this seemed impressive, the 0.56. And the numbers suggested that for those who initiated, and if it was causal, that's the assumption, the number needed to treat to achieve one more person with an A1C less than 8 was only 8 patients for type 1, for those with type 1 diabetes, and only six for those patients with type 2 diabetes. We saw improvements in all important clinical measures used for A1C. The number of folks achieving good control, less A1C less than 7, 
um, again, for this adjusted and weighted uh, result was an improvement of 10.1% for those with an A1C less than eight. That actually improved the most at 16.2%. Uh, and really critically, uh, we saw a significant reduction in the percentage of patients with A1Cs over nine, and that improved, um, again, weighted and, and adjusted by 11.5%. Uh, and those are really important numbers when you think about the level of effort needed to improve um, both an individual patient's lives uh, and prevent long-term complications from uncontrolled diabetes, um, but also often to move a population to that degree is, is, is challenging, uh, either with a new medication or any sort of new technology. And of course, for health plans interested in, in uh, improving uh, their performance on, on the national uh, benchmarks, such as HEDIS comprehensive diabetes care, um, these numbers uh, really br bring light to the potential benefits of, real, of appropriate use of real-time um, CGM for uh, those patients with type 2 diabetes. Well, thank you, and I, and I totally agree with that. As a payer and a pharmacist, I mean, these results are super interesting. You know, mentioned that 0.56% is, is a clinically significant, very large decrease. And I agree with that. It's, this is on top of medications. And so it's really unusual to see anything that moves A1C to, you know, not even a portion of that usually. And the fact that you looked at the patient part of this it just reinforces I think a lot of the, the thoughts that we have in the managed care community and that on what, how and why we do uh, care management and medication therapy management, because what we've learned is that the patient component of this and their role is central to everything. We can prescribe the perfect medication, the perfect regimen, you know, you name it. And if they're not the ones taking control and charge of their behavior and their regimen, it's not going to work. We can't tell people what to do. Um, they have to be part of it. They have to be engaged. So patient engagement is such a huge part of that. And I think that's where real-time CGM plays such an, an interesting role. I mean, it's not a therapy, but to have these types of results with using CGM in this population is super impressive. Um, but we focused on A1C and your comments were around A1C, but did you see any other changes or, around healthcare utilization or other outcomes uh, in addition to the A1C improvement? We did. One of the important aspects of real-time CGM is there's a movement, obviously, away just from A1C toward time and range and a hope that we would decrease or we might see a decrease in both hyper and hypoglycemic events. Um, we weren't able to look at all events, so we focused on the most severe events, such as ER visits or hospital admissions for hypo and hyperglycemic events. And our crude rates for ER visits or hospitalizations for hypoglycemia in the folks with type 2 diabetes who were CGM initiators decreased from 7.8% baseline, which was relatively high, to 3.2%. And in those non-initiators, we actually saw an increase from one8 to 2.2% in those not initiating CGM. So the absolute decrease was about 4%. But the relative decrease was about 53%, something like that. So 
We didn't see a significant decrease in hyperglycemia, but I think of note, especially in older adults on insulin, the risk of hitting the emergency room is actually greater risk for hypoglycemia now than hyperglycemia. I should mention there were two other things that I think came from the study of note. One is we saw a increase, slight increase in the number of telephone visits. Uh, this was within a year and a slight decrease in office visits. Again, super interesting data. You know, hypoglycemia, I agree, is a priority. It has been for us and, and uh, you know, keeping people out of uh, the ER for hypoglycemia is, is important. So, you know, having that data, you know, really at the fingertip of the patient is super important. So this, this is very interesting data. And I think it just, again, reinforces the opportunity that payers, if they're looking at how they're covering CGM, you know, this isn't just type one patients there, you know, we've seen very impressive clinical benefits in uh, type one and type two patients. Dr. Lott, you, you alluded to a minute ago, the new quality metrics. So I, I kind of want to go back to that for a minute. And again, I think they're around the impact on hypoglycemia, but we have some information on the new CMS quality measures for 2023. And there is one on emergency department visits for hypoglycemia in older adults with diabetes. So what do you think the implications are for health plans on the use of CGM in relation to these new potential measures around quality of care? Great question. In my opinion, I'm all for balancing measures in quality, especially when treatments have the potential of downsides, whether that's for diabetes, what we're speaking about today, obviously, is, is the downside risk of hypoglycemia. Um, but there's others that are coming to the fore as well of, of over-treatment. We want to avoid over-treatment, a bias, potential bias of the number being the, the goal. So I'm all for this, this measure. And we're seeing echoes of this in in the guidelines. So the 2022 ADA guidelines really emphasizes hypoglycemia prevention in older adults and supports the use of CGM for diabetic management in the adults using basal insulin. ACE guidelines is now recommending CGM for patients or persons with type 2 diabetes treated with insulin, as well as those with high risk for hypoglycemia, which includes those older or with sulfonylureas and and those with hypoglycemic unawareness or at risk for, because of maybe work or some other aspects of things of, of hypoglycemia. I think interestingly for CMS, we've seen their recommended requirements for, for CGMs really evolving fairly quickly from initially fairly stringent and the expected um, proposal tweaks for next year would be any insulin regimen or anyone with a history of severe hypoglycemia, either defined as just either any numbers below in, in the severe range, less than 55, or those requiring what we call severe hypoglycemia, where you require assistance. So I think I'm seeing things kind of align moving forward, where again, we're, we're moving away from just A1C, we're moving toward time and range, we're moving toward a balanced measure of uh, optimal control, without hypoglycemia if we can avoid it. Uh, those are great points. And, you know, I mean, that's the goal, right, in, in treating patients is not treating to a number, but avoiding and hopefully preventing the uh, microvascular and macrovascular complications that come with this disease. So, you know, I, CGM is such a powerful tool in that, and it's so much more effective than a few finger sticks a day. 
um, just knowing where you are, you know, in terms of your ranges. So, but I think payers are going to have to obviously pay attention to this and get up to speed for these new quality measures that are coming out for 2023. And, and you know, we have to do what we have to do. So I think this will just kind of reinforce, you know, the, the role and, and the future growing role of CGM in, in our overall treatment paradigm. You know, so an integrated system like Kaiser obviously set up to provide coordinated care and to share data across the healthcare team. But how do you see the role of both primary care providers and other payers who aren't in an integrated system like Kaiser? What, what can they do if they don't have the same data components or integration that you have? I think this is a really important point. One aspect of, of this study is, again, this is real world, real time, real evidence, real world data. And in these cases, this was not a program that went out and selected people for, for CGM. These were interactions between our members with diabetes and their care teams uh, for type twos. That those were almost exclusively their primary care docs and support staff. But I think it's just being this growing awareness that many times our members with diabetes are frustrated. They're doing what their physicians or care team has told them to do. And oftentimes it's not working. Their finger sticks don't correlate to their A1C results or they get hyper or hypoglycemic and, and they're trying to do the right thing, but they're frustrated. And oftentimes the providers, the clinicians, docs and, and uh, support staff are also um, really trying to help patients, but th there just needs to be some more data. So I think this technology is, it's mostly beneficial for folks who are, have some baseline engagement and who are frustrated. And what we're seeing is it's opening up their eyes as to the role of diet, exercise, lifestyle, and how with some additional data, the patients with diabetes can really gain more control. And I think that's where support staff can recognize uh, either our, our pharmacist or nurses who are helping their primary care doctors can help to identify these members who are potentially at risk or could potentially benefit from this. And then not pushing it too hard, but just offering it, being aware that there's this tool now with data supporting it that can potentially move folks into, into a much better direction. So, you know, I, I don't know that that would assuage everyone, but I think those providers who see these early success stories, and oftentimes members are coming in maybe on these devices and saying, gosh, my I was on this and it made a huge difference. That really tips things. And I think th the last point I'd make is that we did not see a huge increase in office visits from this. We didn't see an increase in ED visits. We saw a decrease in hypoglycemia. So, so I, I think this is heartening data that if you find the right patient subgroup, the amount of effort behind this or the amount of coordination isn't as much as you might think, that it really is a tool that's mostly driven by the patient themselves. Yeah. I will mention one other aspect of things, and I think this is, there's, a, there's an aspect of the American Diabetes Association, one part around choice. There's an increasing emphasis, I think, on choice and patient characteristics. Again, not a one-size-fits-all in terms of even control and what A1C you're going to shoot for. If you've got a young, motivated patient without long-term complications or so forth, you're going to shoot for or recommend a, a lower A1C. 
But part of that is, is a recognition of the patient and their goals and desires as well. So, and I think around CGM, I think I would make an emphasis that if your patients are curious about this and are asking about it and are hear stories and want to try this, that should be taken into account. I'll mention one other part of a sub-analysis of the study that we did, um, which I thought was also interesting. I was very curious. I asked the team if, if we had enough data to look at those folks who were initiated who were not hyperglycemic. In other words, A1C was actually starting A1C was less than eight and who had not had an episode of severe hypoglycemia in the preceding year. Again, a subgroup of our 340 patients. And we did see it that that group, so again, in relatively good control and without hypoglycemia, we compared that again to non-initiators and among the type two members with type two diabetes. And what we saw was that the folks who initiated actually maintained their A1C control, whereas those who didn't had that somewhat inevitable, we see it, this slide in their A1C of up, I think it was about 0.34, something like that, 0.33 up. So I think there's even some inkling that for motivated patients, use of real-time CGM has the potential to give them better control for a longer period of time. No, thank you. Those, those are great comments. And I, and I love your point that CGM is a really great patient engagement tool. And so the, the role of this and the data is really largely between the patient and the provider, so not the payer per se. So even though you know a lot of other payers won't be in a system like Kaiser, our patients are probably very similar. And we don't have to be able to measure the data because you know the patients are going to be doing similar things. And so why would we not look at this data? Because we can point to the outcomes and we can verify the things that we're doing. So again, I just think it, it's so important that we continue to look at, at data that's coming out of systems like Kaiser because they're doing similar things to what we want to do. We just are maybe not able to measure it. But again, we can recreate the opportunities that go into that. All of the learnings to date. Uh, I want to ask you one question before we go into the questions. And uh, that is, and that is, how can EMR be used to reliably categorize the risk of, uh, say, future hyperglycemia-related ED visits or hospital use in type 2 diabetes patients? Well, thanks, Jeff. Uh, I think this is an important study that maybe it's still being um, uh, worked on, but I think we've now got some some data behind it. This, uh, my co, co-researcher, co uh, Andy Carter and, and uh, Howard Moffat, uh, looked at the Kaiser Permanente database, and this was published back in 2017, looking for a validated way of, of extracting risk from the EMR. And uh, we found it. So about roughly of our, of our population, uh, it turned out to be about 2% of folks in, in our population um, were at high risk. That's, that's a risk of an emergency room visit uh, in the coming year, greater than 5%. Uh, about a, just shy of 11% were in this medium risk group, one to 5%. And then the majority, thankfully, 87% were, were at uh, low risk. And you can see it, it's really six things, uh, prior hypoglycemic event, either many or even just one, 
the other aspects were age was a big factor, CKD, um, use of insulin and use of sulfonylurea. So it makes clinical sense. And I think this would allow our organization and others potentially um, to identify folks who might not uh, bring it to the attention of their providers uh, that they are at high risk. And what we have now, both by recommendations and, and now data, is that this subgroup um, probably should be considered for an intervention, either decreasing or discontinuing a medication if possible, um, or if the goal is still to continue those medications, to consider a safety net, uh, such as real-time CGM. I think this is really cool because uh, in the organizations where I've been over the last decade, we really have put an emphasis on interventional components of our care management programs. So looking at this data and uh, trying to find and head off uh, patients who are heading towards issues. And in, in most cases, it, it's easier and better to avoid an issue rather than deal with an issue after the fact and have to pay for it and deal with it. So I, you know, these, these are things that we can easily apply and and data points we can pull, and uh, we could build in these into our programs and then better proactively reach out to our patients and uh, educate them and, and, again, hopefully avoid some of these issues. So I, I, I love this, and, and thank you for going over that. And we'll dive into uh, some questions now. Uh, there are a couple around quality metrics. And so the first one I want to ask you about was, do you foresee upcoming changes to quality metrics affecting utilization of diabetes technology? I do. As we talked about uh, just earlier, now that there's a new HEDIS measure uh, active this year, 2023, for those uh, under the comprehensive diabetes metric, for those older members and looking for their uh, hypoglycemic events relative to expected. And that, I believe, as, a, as I talked about earlier, a nice balancing measure will put additional uh, focus on risk of hypoglycemia. And I think identifying that, group, that subgroup will likely drive um, more appropriate use of this technology. You may be familiar, uh, you and others may be familiar, that it's not as common as we would like to think that we really ask about episodes of severe hypoglycemia. Some of us do it just routinely. Uh, many of our care managers do it routinely, but uh, but you have to ask. And uh, often members will not, uh, that patients will not come forward unless asked uh, that they had an episode where they needed help. Perfect, thank you. The second kind of related question uh, is around uh, employers. So. But we all, you know, as payers, we all have a lot of interaction with employers. And it seems to me, though, that a lot, that a lot of the conversations around uh, escalating, especially drug trends and what are we going to do to to help them uh, address those types of things. But um, and rightfully so. But the, the second question here is, you know, when you're talking to employers, you know, how do you stress or, or really talk about the importance of quality metrics and what it means to them outside of just the normal cost stuff that they that they're concerned about. Sure, I, I do think I think paying attention to some of these quality metrics can be a, a great alignment. There are so many aspects of our care that uh, that pull and push us in some ways. When there's a national metric out there that really is 
very closely tied to the data and helps um, everyone get on the same page. I, I know for us, it's, it's, we wanted to make sure we, we got to um, good A1C measurements that aren't wiggling around at, at, at the lab. And so I think the, the use of these metrics and the focus on these metrics will save lives. There's no doubt about it. And, um, and as, a, as a payer, reputationally, it will help to drive, uh, for those folks looking, it's going to help drive your business. Because uh, if you are providing quality care and saving lives, th that's what we're all about. No, great points. And I, and, and I agree. I think, you know, I think by using some of the data, some of the things we've talked about today, we can actually now, um, you know, put in context, you know, some of these longer term outcomes in, in something that actually is meaningful for employers. So great comments. There's a couple questions I'm going to try to squeeze in because they're kind of, again, related around a theme, and that is appropriate patient populations for CGM. So really, the first question is, you know, which patient populations do you see as getting the most benefits from starting CGM? And then the second specific question is, how do you feel about a, a type 2 patient not on insulin that has a history of hypoglycemia who wants CGM? Is that an appropriate patient? I think that's, that is going to be one of my other co-researchers, Lisa Gilliam, uh, and I have, have talked about this. And in our minds, at some point, hopefully, uh, this technology and, and the, the cost associated with it, we feel as though uh, finger sticks, at some point, uh, finger sticks are likely to go away, right? I don't know if that's 10 years, 20 years, five years. But um, at some point, uh, this new technology is going to be a better solution. Uh, for those of us who are really evidence-based, I think right now we're not quite there yet. But again, I, I think there's an aspect of, of uh, shared decision-making and, and member-appropriate care. There may be some patients who, uh, let's say their jobs, put them at, at significant risk for, for hypoglycemia where they, with regard to their treatment and so forth. I think those, those definitely need to be considered with the current guidelines for and the current data, I think it's hard to come up with that. But but I, I think that that is coming and and but we have to see. So I'm I'm very sympathetic to those folks coming in, and I think asking about if you know no history of hypoglycemia. Well, we have some data on this study that suggests that you don't have to be in poor control or have a history of hypoglycemia to maintain control. So. Um, I could, in some cases, I think I could justify it, but right now the guidelines are not quite there yet. And uh, with Medicare and so forth, you may not be able to get it covered. Great. Appreciate that. Yeah. You know, as we move to time and range, obviously there's benefits here. So Absolutely. Uh, great comments. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're, we're yeah, it's just, it just takes time, right? To get yep. everything caught up, but we're hopefully we're moving in the right direction. Unfortunately, we are out of time. So we'll have to wrap up. And, and I would just like to thank you, Dr. Lott, for presenting and uh, really for uh, you know, helping us understand how we can improve quality of care for our members and our patients. 